Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Amber, hello. So great to be back on the show. Plenty of exciting things to talk about. Unfortunately, we do not have Haley Kanath with us this week, but she'll be back with us next week. And I think we're going to hold down the fort with pretty, you know, classic podcast stuff. The Bachelor's back. Yeah, and I'm actually sad we don't have Haley this week because I feel like she would be uh, someone that we really want to hear from on this topic. But longtime listeners of the show know that we do chime in on a new season of The Bachelor or Bachelorette. We vet the contestant pool for people who work in legal services industry, lawyers, paralegals, law clerks, whatever. Usually it's just lawyers, but it's going to be a long, or or rather it's going to be a short uh, segment here, Amber, because I watched the premiere, I didn't see any, and I was a little disheartened by it. You know, you couldn't have said that better. Disheartened is the exact feeling I had because (laughs) I always look at the little, you know, crons. Of course, yes. And I look for two things. One, primarily lawyers, as we just said. But the second one are just like the silly, like made up job titles that they give people every now and then. And I was kind of disappointed on both fronts. There wasn't anything really ridiculous that I saw unless I missed one, Alex. No, they've kind of, they're steering into the skid of some people are just on here because they're on Instagram. Like there are a couple, there's at least one person who's just like, a content creator. Yeah, but like in the past, they would be like, this is a pizzapreneur or whatever. I know, I I know. Like I say, it's disheartening. I was also really overwhelmed by the number of nurses. Did you note that as well? Yeah, there were a lot. I mean, there's at least four that I counted. And then also a nursing student. So like four and a half nurses. There was, (laughs) there was an, yeah, there was an ER nurse a dermatology nurse, neonatal nurse, some other type of nurse, and a nurse. I mean, does this make your wife a doctor happier? Because at least the tie-in is to her profession. Well, she has the, yes, uh, we we watch it together, of course, and she's she's keyed into, into the healthcare industry the way that I'm keyed into the legal industry or the journalism industry, I suppose. And yeah, I mean, she's just, she was sort of like, silently judging the credentials of the various nurses. (laughs) Anyway, that's that's not really important. I think that's awesome (laughs) because at least if we can't get the lawyers, at least she got to have a little fun with a (laughs) different industry. She had a lot to chew on, yes. I will say, um, not entirely optimistic this is going to be a great season. We'll maybe catch back up with this later on down the road. But what we lacked in attorneys on The Bachelor, we're making up for on today's show. We have two awesome attorneys who uh, joined me in a conversation we had about something really, um, it's gotten a lot of traction and coverage in the past couple of weeks where entire law firms, like every attorney at certain firms, are being banned from attending events at MSG and other prominent New York venues because they are in litigation, or at least their firm is, with the company that runs those venues. So, we are talking to a couple of the attorneys fighting against those blanket bans, and it's just fascinating stuff. Yeah, I was sad I couldn't join you for that. I did want to ask whether you inquired as to, you know, whether it's really a punishment if some if a venue is banning you from watching the Knicks 
<laughs> is that really like a punishment? I don't know. Did you Look, did you did you inquire about this? I mean, that may not be the punishment that the venue <laughs> thinks it is, but not being able to see like Lizzo or of whatever. Course. Now that's a punishment. So yes, you know, plenty of plenty of pain going around there. But yes, it, it's it's mostly interesting, not just because I think our listeners who are largely attorneys, law students, people really interested in the law, of course, care about this because it's impacting the profession. But it raises really big questions about the use of facial recognition at venues. It raises questions about retribution for just filing litigation. So lots to get into there. Yes. Uh, looking forward to everyone hearing that awesome discussion you had. In the meantime, we do have some very interesting news stories to get to. Let's start with we're back on the antitrust beat. We are. With uh, with Google and, uh, and a new suit from the federal government. I like how you set that up by saying we're back on this beat because the Justice Department really is back at it with another lawsuit against Google over its yes. digital advertising technology. Basically, DOJ is doubling down with a complaint alleging Google illegally established a digital advertising monopoly and that it's looking to break that up and make the company sell part of its business. If this sounds extremely familiar, that's for <laughs> a reason. Um, Google has is currently already facing a similar monopolization claim from Tex a Texas-led group of a state attorneys general, and they're going after Google's role in selling advertising space on third-party websites. That's also on top of a more than two-year-old DOJ suit over Google's role in online searching. So just really putting the pressure on Google all related to this advertising behavior. Yeah, we got like a club sandwich now of, of various overlapping antitrust claims around Google's ad tech. And I do think it would be useful. You gave us a little primer there on, I mean, I guess we can start with the, this is a DOJ suit we're talking about. I do want to, establish what the DOJ has already alleged against Google, where does that case stand and how does it fit into what they did this week? So the Justice Department filed what is uh, basically a landmark monopolization case in 2020 against Google. In that suit, it challenged Google's role in online searching and the ads that, that accompany those search results specifically zeroing in on Google's contracts with Apple and other phone manufacturers and browser developers. So with those contracts, the DOJ says Google pays billions of dollars to keep its search the default one on things like iPhones, browsers, just really making sure it is the prominent and sometimes only one that you can see. That's one suit. A bunch of state attorneys general joined that suit. And then on top of that, a coalition of attorneys general led by Texas, as I mentioned before, brought another separate action around the same time. Those cases are proceeding in tandem, and they are before the same D.C. federal judge. So where it stands now, um, DOJ's first case is set for trial, but not until September. It's been more than two years. So you can see how, you know, justice is a long road. But we're, <laughs> yes. we're getting towards some, some hot action there later this year. We are getting towards some hot antitrust action <laughs> is in our this near future. This is about future. as exciting as antitrust can get. No, it's this Google. Is a huge it's the thing government. Though. This is a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. And I do want to try and sort of understand. I mean, this was 
as you say, it was a pretty big, like, broadsides to Google when the DOJ filed that initial lawsuit, and it's, you know, surging toward a trial. What are they alleging now, and why is it different? Not to muddy the waters even more, but I will also caveat this next bit with it's DOJ making allegations now, but this case, too, is joined by a bunch of states. So let me rattle off the list. Virginia, California, Colorado, Connecticut, New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island, Tennessee, bunch of states joining in the latest suit against Google. The feds and states both claim that Google has corrupted legitimate competition in this ad tech space. They say that's happened by Google pursuing what they call a systemic campaign to seize control of all of the digital advertising tools used by publishers, advertisers, and brokers. So up and down that chain, they're consolidating their control. In particular, they say Google gobbled up a bunch of competitors, both existing ones and also even potential competition. Uh, And that was, according to the government, state and federal government, they say that was designed to neutralize all potential competition. And that's only possible because Google is so, so huge and had this in mind. Google has allegedly forced both website publishers selling advertising space and the advertisers buying it to use its Google ad tech offerings. I do have a quote from the um, complaint, and I think it kind of packages this all up pretty well. Google, a single company with pervasive conflicts of interest, now controls one, the technology used by nearly every major website publisher to offer advertising space for sale, two, the leading tools used by advertisers to buy that advertising space, And three, the largest ad exchange that matches publishers with advertisers each time that ad space is sold. So you can see they're really pulling no punches here. They're saying Google is just controlling too much um, and trying to push out any competition that would erase their stranglehold in this ad space. So how do we differentiate this between between this and the other various suits that have been filed against Google so far, I mean, how do we differentiate them? Yeah, I think there's a couple things to know. The first is um, I would really encourage people to read Brian Koenig's reporting. He was on our show a couple of weeks ago. He's our antitrust expert here, and he's done a lot of good work if you're interested in this and want to dig deeper. He summed up that this essentially is a full-on assault on a core part of Google's business structure. And the government is actually asking here for a divestiture of Google's ad manager suite. That is a huge part of their business. So that does make this quite sweeping. In terms of how this is different or similar, depending on your perspective, from the existing suits, this week's suit is, in fact, pretty similar to the one filed by the Texas-led Coalition of Attorneys General. They alleged that Google had used its market power in the ad exchange market to coerce publishers to basically license its publisher publishing ad server. And they also brought monopolization claims and attempt to monopolize claims. So there are clear overlaps here. Yeah, and I and I suspect it'll get settled um, or rather those overlaps will be resolved in the course of like how these how these cases are litigated, I do want to ask you, they've clearly been inundated with with legal challenges. I would imagine Google has something to say about this. I mean, they are a very powerful corporation, and I personally would love to know if this means there will be a reduction in 
the Google ad chum at the bottom of my articles. It's like, you won't believe what's happened <laughs> to to Brendan Fraser now, even though he's nominated for an Oscar, et cetera. Oh, Alex, you're never getting rid of those. I don't care what happens with this suit. Those are last forever. Okay. Well, anyway, I'm just <laughs> I'm just joshing around there. But like, what has Google said about these? Like now, a very a very thick sort of uh, brush, like underbrush of legal challenges. No surprise. I mean, they're not thrilled about this, of course. I mean, this is. You know, heavy hitters from the government coming after a core part of their business. Mm-hmm. Google, in this instance, has put a ton of emphasis on the similarities between the existing suits and the new one. It said that DOJ's latest suit, and this is a quote, largely duplicates an unfounded lawsuit by the Texas Attorney General and said it attempts to pick winners and losers in the highly competitive advertising technology sector. So they're basically saying, like, hey, we're already facing these claims. You're going too far here. Knock it off. That's Google's official stance. Well, and that's why I kept asking you what the difference was between the things. And you said there is some overlap. And it seems like Google is now saying, I mean, it almost seems like they're maybe saying it's like a, I'm not speaking for them, but like that it might be like a little bit of a publicity stunt or that it's like you're just kind of like doubling down on your on your I legal get, arguments. I mean, I don't want to put words in Google's mouth either because they have spoken for themselves already, but you do get the impression that they are trying to cast this as, you know, overkill, essentially, that this yeah. is already being litigated. So the company has also said that they object to these suits in general because their argument is that it, it would, in fact, slow innovation and raise advertising fees. And they say it would make it harder for things like small businesses and publishers to grow. So That's Google's side of this. Now, we have had some dueling statements, of course, from the government. Um, The Justice Department is really trying to downplay this litigation overlap. It says that the government, like other advertisers, has spent tens of millions of dollars on display ads. And so it's not just suing to protect the marketplace. It actually has its own alleged damages here. Yeah, I hadn't considered that. So that is an interesting wrinkle. Yeah, that they are an actual, it's not just like in their sort of oversight safeguarding role, they are an injured fact, party. Alleged in certain, that they are, in a, yeah. It, it, in it, allegedly so. Yeah, absolutely. So there's plenty, I mean, I think if nothing else from this segment, I hope our listeners take away that there's a lot going on here and that often these <laughs> giant antitrust suits do take some time to move through the system and get to resolution. I think our next big point to watch is in the fall if it does, in fact, go to trial as it is currently slated to for those original suits. So there will be plenty to watch in this space. It's a super interesting case, and that is also true of our next story, where we are diving back into a story that we've talked about a handful of times on the show. Uh, It's this extremely thorny litigation over the decision by Whole Foods, the grocery store, to fire workers who began wearing Black Lives Matter face masks on the job during their shifts in the summer of 2020. And there have been a number of challenges to those firing decisions. They have mostly come up short and that held firm this week as well as a Massachusetts federal judge found that there was basically no evidence suggesting that the firings of three specific former employees that brought the suit. The judge did not consider those firings retaliatory. It basically tossed the whole case 
aside. And this is the latest iteration of a multi-pronged legal fight that I think is very worthy of revisiting. This one has always fascinated me, Alex. You're right. I think we've talked about it on the program. We've certainly written about it extensively at Law360. But part of the reason I find this one so interesting is that it connects so many different issues, right? It's got employment law. It's got pandemic things. It's about racial justice. What do we need to know? Because those are some heady topics. So this case is one of several that has been filed by former Whole Foods workers. And there are a couple different factual distinctions that I'll try and unpack later. But basically what you need to know is that every former Whole Foods employee who has sued here is basically trying to bring a discrimination claim under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act against Whole Foods. Like many other people across the nation, these former employees really embraced the Black Lives Matter movement following the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May of 2020. And that led them to put on these Black Lives Matter masks. Uh, And again, the pandemic is raging at this time in May, June of 2020. And they put on these masks during their shifts at Whole Foods. And many of those workers were either you know, disciplined or in, or in most cases, as, as is germane to this litigation, where they were fired. And the company justified those decisions by leaning on its, its dress code, its corporate dress code policy that basically banned the display of slogans or messages that are not to do with any of the company's like branded logos or anything sort of off of the company's brand. And at the core of this dispute uh, is basically whether the company, as is required under Title VII, displayed an actual discriminatory racial animus in firing these workers for wearing these Black Lives Matter masks, or whether the company is is just enforcing its dress code that the employees are completely aware of and are and are bound to. And the tension between those two positions has basically led to a lot of back and forth, both in discovery and then sort of on the briefing for motions to dismiss and summary judgment about the nature and the timing about like when exactly Whole Foods decided to discipline these people and like when these masks started to be put on. It's like very granular and it's it's just a very it's very much a like, what did you know and when did you know it? And what action did you take when you learned those things? So it's like very specific, but very, very intriguing uh, from the prospect of employment law. I mean, honestly, you just described most of employment law right there. It yeah. so often really <laughs> does come down to what employers knew when or not, what was said by employees. Especially for it's, discrimination. It's very, very stuff. factual. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So given that backdrop and how complex those sort of that parsing all of those facts can be. What did the judge have to say in this Massachusetts case? So as has been the case in these other lawsuits, it was a pretty resounding win for Whole Foods. Uh, This was brought before a Massachusetts federal judge named Allison D. Burroughs, and she has been basically the hub of all of this litigation. It's all been funneled to her, basically, because this is in Massachusetts is where this dust-up began. And Judge Burroughs 
gave this summary judgment in Whole Foods' favor. And while she very clearly acknowledged that, you know, firing people for wearing these Black Lives Matter masks is like not a great look given the climate of the of the country at that time. There's a little bit of a difference between just kind of maybe a unsavory business decision and something that's actually illegal. Um, and I thought that this was a pretty instructive quote from her summary judgment ruling. There is little evidence in the record to refute Whole Foods' legitimate business explanations for its strict enforcement of its dress code policy against the wearing of Black Lives Matter masks and its termination of plaintiffs as a result, however unwise they might have been. And that, that the last part of that quote, I think, it gets to the sort of like what we talk about is like it's like bad optics or whatever, sure. right? You know what I'm saying? About he's just like it doesn't look good when like literally people are wearing Black Lives Matter masks and you fire them because of it. And you fired them in the middle of a pandemic and it is related to the mask of it all. So it's got so many shades and tones. Yeah, that make definitely. It seem like a really head scratcher of a decision on the part of the company. Yeah, of course. I mean, to dive a little bit deeper into it, this case was brought by three former workers and they basically alleged that they had faced stricter punishment by their termination than other employees that had violated the dress code, that other employees had violated the dress code, but they weren't, they maybe just were given a warning or, or it, it was not uniformly sort of administered. But the judge said that while it's true that the company did not really begin enforcing its dress code until the middle of 2020, uh, when they started doing it, they did so on a pretty uniform basis, at least according to, to the documents that have been filed in this litigation. The other thing that the judge said is that the documents produced in the suit showed pretty crucially that the plaintiffs that were challenging their firings here had at least been like making waves at the company even before this dispute over the masks began. And I think that that's a little bit crucial. And the judge gave a really interesting and very nuanced commentary on that issue. I'll, I'll read you a quote here. And though the chronology of events in this matter is not entirely without dispute, this point is further weakened by at least some evidence in the record that indicates that Whole Foods began issuing disciplinary points for plaintiffs' policy violations before they even began engaging in protected conduct. So what that all means is to say that the company has a dress code and the court doesn't think that that dress code is discriminatory on its face and that they're enforcing it in a uniform way. And that's basically open and shut for any kind of retaliatory firing claims. So for context of maybe like the broader fight, I know that you said there were a series of suits where do we stand on everything beyond just Massachusetts? Yeah, I do want to say also just like in like kind of like a just like a general reactions kind of kind of thing. Counsel for the plaintiffs told Law 360 they expressed a lot of disappointment with the ruling and did vow to appeal so it could uh, head to the First Circuit, though that 
may not be so fruitful, as I'll discuss in a second. Um, Whole Foods also gave a statement saying that it has always tried to foster an inclusive workplace and it appreciates the attention and care that the court gave to the matter, but it's likely we'll get some more argument here. I, I want to make clear this decision focused on the discrimination claims from three former employees and it and it alleged a specific set of facts about their firing. But the court also wrestled with this issue along a, along a similar fact pattern in 2021 when Judge Burroughs ruled that Title VII does not protect employees' rights to associate with a social cause. I mean, Amber, I know you know this. The, you know, Title VII protects, you know, against discrimination on the basis of religion, sex, race, etc. But that even though this social cause is pinned to race, it's Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's a racial issue. Your alliance with this cause does not bring you into a protected class, which I think is an interesting needle to thread. Now, again, she ruled that two years ago, the First Circuit upheld that last year, which is why I nodded to that, the, the, the fact that this new case might, have, might appeal to the same court. I don't suspect they will have much more success. I could be wrong. But I do also want to say that the plaintiffs that are bringing the case that we're talking about this week in federal court are also litigating at the National Labor Relations Board, where a judge denied the company's effort to basically trim down the discrimination claims. And so that is still pending at the NLRB, the, which is an administrative court, of course, and is, and is subject to its own judicial review. So all, all of which is to say the employees that have tried to challenge these policies have faced some pretty tough sledding. But there are a few cards left to play for them, and we'll have to see how it all shakes out. Attorneys keep some pretty long hours, but when they do finally get some time off, you may find them at a Knicks game or seeing a Lizzo show. That is, unless their law firm has sued MSG Entertainment, which operates iconic New York venues like Madison Square Garden and Radio City Music Hall. The company has been barring all lawyers from firms with litigation pending against them from attending concerts and sporting events. Today, we're joined by two attorneys from Davidoff, Hutcher, and Citron, a firm that's been fighting against this kind of blanket ban. First, welcome to employment attorney, Benjamin Noren. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hey, good afternoon. And we're also joined by litigation specialist, Joe Polito. Hi, Joe. Hey, Amber. How you doing? It is great to have you both because this is quite the twisty saga and your firm is right in the heart of it. So I want to get into all of the really interesting details here. But let's just start with the very beginning. Um, your firm represents some ticket resellers that are in a lawsuit against MSG Entertainment. And after that suit was filed, MSG told you guys to get lost. You can't come to the venues anymore. Can you kind of tell us more about that beginning stage and what happened? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we had heard um, a little bit uh, that MSG was taking this tact because uh, I think there was an article earlier in the summer um, about a firm who was banned. Um, and so we, we were joking whether or not this was going to happen to us. Uh, and sure enough, nine days after we uh, commenced the litigation, 
uh, on behalf of the ticket brokers, uh, we received a written notice um, from MSG um, that said due to the litigation, uh, we were no longer uh, able to go to uh, venues uh, and the venues that were listed were, as you said, you know, Madison Square Garden, the Hulu Theater, uh, Beacon Theater, um, and actually Chicago Theater is included, but clearly that's that's not our, our priority here. Uh, but clearly these were the premier events uh, centers in, in New York City. Um, and the basis was, uh, in, in that notice, was uh, Rule 4.2 um, in New York's Professional Code of Conduct, where um, they were under the guise that uh, they didn't want improper discovery, um, which is wild. And in that bl- ban, that letter that they sent you, they said they were banning all the attorneys at the firm, right? Not correct. just the people on the actual litigation. Yeah. And and, and to, to even clear that up, uh, myself and, and Larry Hutcher are the attorneys who are on that other case. Uh, so it wasn't uh, just us that were affected. It was the entire firm. So our corporate department, our trusted estates department, um, those who have no idea that that case even uh, was commenced, uh, were all caught up um, in this ban. Uh, I was ban- I was banned and I have nothing to do with that case. Right, because right, it's not an employment case and you specialize in employment law. So very unrelated there. I am interested sort of in mechanics about how this even works, because when I first heard about this and read some New York Times reporting on it, my first thought was, well, can't you just buy a ticket? Like, can't your friend buy your ticket for you and you can still get in? But it's a little more Orwellian than that. Um, can you maybe explain how they can actually ban a whole firm of attorneys? So, you know, from from our understanding, it seems that how it's worked out is uh, they have uh, scrubbed our photos um, off of, at a minimum, our own website. Um, and that's been inputted in their facial recognition. So once we get to the venue, um, a lot of times right above the uh, metal detector, and I think Ben could fill you in a little bit more on that, there's a uh, camera. And once that camera picks you up, regardless of how you got that ticket, uh, you're greeted uh, by the MSG security. Yeah, we're going to get to your story in just a second, Ben, because I do think it's a really illustrative one of what's been going on here. But before we do, Joe, can you tell us more about how you started to fight against this once you got the letter and knew that they were going to bar all of the attorneys in the firm from going to any of these venues? I mean, Generally, a company can decide who to do business with as long as they aren't discriminating against a protected class. Lawyers are, unfortunately for all of us that have a law degree, are, we're not protected a protected class. But there are other avenues you've been pursuing. Like, how has that um, worked out? What laws are you relying on to fight against this? Yeah, you know, once we um, received that notice, you know, we immediately knew that whatever policy justification MSG was putting in that notice was just pretext as this was clearly vindictive in the sense of uh, targeting those attorneys who had the temerity of commencing a lawsuit uh, against MSG. And so we knew there was something wrong here. And from my perspective, um, knowing that we wanted to take some action uh, to stop this, um, was really looking and diving into how places of amusement and public entertainment are regulated. Um, And that's where I came across Civil Rights Law 40B, uh, which stood out to me because it applies to any person. Um, There is no classification as, uh, do you need some sort of discriminatory element to it? It's any person who's above the age of 21 and has a ticket of admission. Um, Now there are enumerated venues, which is sort of where our fight is a little bit today um, because it doesn't necessarily cover um, or 
excuse me, uh, I'll rather say MSG believes that it doesn't cover sporting events. Uh, that, that's actually uh, on appeal for us now. And looking at that, it, it, it seemed, uh, how could they be doing this when you have this statute that is so clear on its face? Yeah, and and that statute is a relatively old one in New York that was meant to protect basically, you know, critics of theater and that sort of thing that were getting blackballed from attending Correct. events. Yeah, no, and, and what was crazy is, you know, when I sort of discovered that statute, uh, the legislative history wasn't readily available uh, because it was enacted in 1941. Uh, so I had to do a bit of digging to find it. But once I found it, I mean, it was incredible because that's exactly right. Um, Schubert Theaters was banning uh, critics um, who were giving negative reviews about the performances. And uh, that had to be stopped. And that's where uh, sort of culminated in the enactment of uh, Civil Rights Law 41B, which is parallel to what's happening to today. You have those who are criticizing MSG um, who are being banned. So, I mean, I think it plays right into uh, what's happening today, even though the statute was created, uh, you know, what, 80 years ago? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, you had to dig into into the archives for that one. I know that as an initial step, you did get an injunction that was supposed to at least temporarily resolve this issue and allow attorneys from the firm to attend things where they had tickets. But now we turn to Ben. Uh, You did not have a great experience with that, even after that injunction was granted. So tell us about your actual personal experience of trying to go to see something at MSG. Yeah, that's right, Amber. You know, I'm a big concert fan. I am as I said before, I'm not, I wasn't related to this underlying lawsuit. I was really upset that I couldn't go see concerts anymore. And I was waiting and eager for Joe and Larry to win the injunction. They got it on a Monday. The next concert at MSG was Wednesday when uh, this guy Wizkid was playing. He's a Nigerian rapper that is not my favorite, but he's my second favorite Nigerian rapper. <laughs> so I thought, you know, good enough. I'll go back and celebrate. And I... Went with my friend Dave. I arrived at the venue. I had a ticket. I walked through the metal detectors, and about one second later, I was greeted by two senior members of MSG's in-house legal counsel and the head of security, who said that there was a hit on their facial recognition. They asked me if I was Ben Norin and if I worked with David Alf Hunter and Citron. I said yes to both. Then they showed me a picture of me walking into the venue uh, side by side with a picture from my law firm's website. And they said, well, then you know why we stopped you. And uh, because I expected them to, to stop me, I had the judge's injunction ready and I pulled it out and I said, I don't know why you stopped me. Here's a copy of Judge Frank's injunction enjoining you from banning me. And the response of Al Weidenfeld, who was a who is a defendant in our lawsuit and who had nothing else to do on Wednesday at eight o'clock, um, told me that they're not banning me; they just revoked my tickets now and forever, <laughs> and so that they're complying yeah. with the court's order. Ben, I know you recorded all of this, so let's play a little bit of the audio clip of what happened. And Benjamin Norin, yes, and excuse me, one second. Do you work uh, for David Davidoff, Hutcher, and Citron? Yes. LLP? Yeah. Okay. Well, then you know, sir, that I, I know you're going to, you've also received our order. You received our letter. And no, no, I received a order from the Honorable 
yes, Wild Frank, which has my name, and which provides the line to be allowed entry. Also, you also got to notice that defendants are enjoined from denying access to a person presenting a valid ticket in the day of an event after the venue opens to the public. I have a valid ticket. Well, sir, you don't have a valid ticket because I communicated to your firm and to the attorneys at your firm by a letter delivered to your firm by a Federal Express Monday night delivered to your firm on Tuesday. I know that your firm received that letter because Mr. Hutcher responded to that letter. So I know that you received that letter. What is your letter. name, sir? My name is Hal Leiden. You're Hal? I am Hal. <laughs> so we communicated to Mr. Hutcher that to the extent that uh, you had tickets, or any of the members of the firm had tickets that they were being revoked. In compliance with the judge's orders, we notified you that the tickets were being revoked, so your ticket is not valid for you. The ticket has been revoked, and you are not permitted in the building. So you're ignoring the court's order? No, I believe we are complying with the court's order because we revoked your ticket. Having revoked your ticket, on Monday night, before I, I even, before I even bought the ticket, I don't know when you bought the ticket. What do you, you don't what, know anything about you know, how I bought the ticket? But I you know you revoked it. Yes, I do. That's what the letter says. Okay. It says it doesn't matter when you acquired the ticket. It said if you possess a ticket, you you can read the letter. Whether you had the ticket then or acquired it thereafter, we were revoking the ticket. I can imagine that was quite frustrating, but not just for you. I mean, you had to come back to work after that and tell Joe what happened. And you're the one that's actually handling this litigation. So what was the firm's response when even despite the injunction, MSG obviously viewed the parameters of that injunction very differently than you guys did? Yeah, it was aggravating. Um, it was aggravating in the sense that not only were they banning uh, Ben, but then they were issuing these other notices that uh, basically said, shouting from the mountaintops, that any ticket uh, from now until perpetuity, uh, as long as it touches a band attorney's hand, is is, is now revoked, um, which is just wild and really an abuse um, of what that initial injunction was, uh, which to me is immediately, uh, you know, file that motion to contempt. Um, uh, but that was a bit short-circuited in the sense that the judge wind up issuing a sort of clarifying order uh, two days after uh, that really made it clear that MSG cannot uh, just uh, revoke any and all tickets now and in the future um, uh, that a you know a band attorney uh, is in possession of, or you know if a friend invites you, or uh, whether you get it from StubHub, uh, you know any legitimate means. Yeah. I mean, I do want to be clear here. We are obviously talking to two very interested parties in this case. We did reach out to MSG to get their comment on this as well. We have not heard back from them as of the time of this recording, but they've said to other outlets that they just disagree with your interpretation of the underlying laws here and what they're allowed to do and that they're going to fight this pretty hard. There doesn't seem to be any backing down on their part. You have had some success in court, uh, not just with that injunction, but, you know, more broadly, you've also, you and other firms affected in this way have complained in a variety of ways that are outside of the, the court system, you know, to the sports commissions, to the state liquor authority, and also to the New York attorney general. Can you talk a bit about those tactics that are not necessarily litigation, but have also tried to put pressure on a venue deciding to take this route? I mean, I think it's great. I think it's great that these other, uh, even the elected officials uh, came had a press release recently uh, on introducing some new legislation uh, directly amending Civil Rights 40B to include sporting events. Uh, 
so it's clearly it's very much welcomed, and I think it just recognizes how wrong MSG is uh, when you now have all these other authorities coming out and 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 looking at what MSG is doing and seeing for what it is. I mean, it's not a legitimate policy. It's 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 vindictive at its core, um, and especially that they're using facial recognition now to sort of support that. I, I think is really angered uh, or has awakened a lot of anger in, in, in folks. Yeah, I want to get into a bit of that. As I said earlier, it feels a little Orwellian that we're all being facially scanned as we go into a concert and that this can happen. But I also did just want to say for the listeners that Letitia James just today, Wednesday, as of this recording, a letter that she'd written to MSG urging them to drop this ban policy was released publicly. So that's another sort of voice in this growing fervor against these kind of blanket bans. But yeah, let's talk about some of the bigger implications here, because as much as I'd like to say lawyers unable to attend fancy concert and games is a big deal, for the general public, maybe not as much sympathy for us lawyers out there. But I do think the issue writ large is a big deal for everyone. So can you speak to that? Like, what do you see as some of the implications here beyond just inconvenience to attorneys who want to go see a concert? You know, the the MSG's practices practices aren't limited to attorneys. I've received a number of emails from people who have been kicked out of the garden and are being kept out of the garden and other facility, MSG facilities simply for speaking their mind on the internet or to James Dolan in person or any comments to him that he should sell the team or that he is doing a bad job. You get on this list and they use facial recognition to keep you out. And they use it, if you're lucky enough to get in, they use it to monitor you while you're there. And, you know, Big Brother is always watching. And so that, yeah, we're not that sympathetic as attorneys, but where where is it going next? And, and it's already it's already happening. Yeah, it, it certainly seems to just throw into stark relief how powerful this AI facial recognition stuff can be. Um, you know, I was really shocked to hear you describing how quickly you made it just through basically the first security check and they already had pulled up your picture from your firm website, had it all matched up, came to tell you you couldn't go in. I mean, that seems really surprising. I mean, not something I think the general public really thinks about when they go in to see a game. This is not limited to MSG and attorneys. I mean, if MSG gets away with it, other companies will use it to, you know, make out retribution against their corporate enemies as well. You know, you're not, you're going to sue Walmart. You're not allowed to go to any Walmart, your whole firm, not even if you're, if you're not even associated with the case. I mean, the application is, is terrifying. So, Joe, can you tell me any next steps you see here? Because it does paint, as Ben said, a, a bit of a terrifying potential future if every time a firm sues, they can't go to various venues or restaurants or stores or whatever else is using this facial recognition technology to keep people out. Yeah. And, you know, that's why we, quite frankly, have to keep the pressure on. Um, you know, we we have a, a, an underlying case here. Uh, we we have uh, the motion dismiss phase is over. Uh, our civil rights law 40B claims are moving forward. MSG has appealed the injunction. Uh, that's on tap. We're cross appealing because uh, we don't think uh, sporting events should have been excluded. 
Um, so, you know, from our perspective, it's to keep the pressure on and, and keep moving forward um, because uh, quite clearly outside of just the, the, the personal feelings of, uh, of being upset by the, the action MSGs took, you know, we think we're, we're clearly in the, in the legal right here. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the consistency in which MSG keeps on, you know, putting out that this is some sort of legitimate policy. I mean, at, at the end of the day, it's just this uh, vindictive, um, you know, because we represent clients um, who disagree with how MSG has, uh, has treated them. And, you know, why are, <laughs> are we to be penalized for that? Or, you know, clearly, it, it, and, you know, the other scary part of this is the the chill uh chilling effect this could have with regards to the administration of justice um what are you going to force uh quick settlements or better settlements because that's when this ban uh, officially is over um are you going to affect people's ability to get counsel because uh you're ban- you're banning attorneys i mean it's it's just nonsensical at this point well, all eyes will be on how this case resolves for all the reasons we've talked about. It's absolutely a fascinating one about where the line should be drawn around this kind of technology at venues and also what venue owners are allowed to do in response to litigation. So thank you very much for both of you being on the show today and talking about it with me. I really appreciate it. Sure. Thanks for having us. Thank you. our show is something offbeat. And Alex, I know you've got one you want to talk about. Yeah. Hey, listen, in my house, we subscribe to Bon Appetit magazine. Okay. You guys and are I don't, so fancy. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm not here to talk about how fancy or not fancy that is. I don't think I was involved in the decision to subscribe to this magazine. But anyway, it's laying around. Honestly, Amber, I lay it around for my son to just kind of like tear up because it's fun for him. But in the December-January issue, I can't even tell you how I stumbled across this, but the writer, Dawn Davis, in Bon Appetit, had a question and answer uh, session with none other than legal literary giant John Grisham. Oh, great. He's in Bon Appetit. I am so curious about what his culinary takes are, but... Let me just start by saying, in my younger years, formative years, one would argue. In your younger, more read, vulnerable years, like F. Scott well, Fitzgerald, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Yeah. I okay. did read a lot of John Grisham, and I can't say that that uh, wasn't part of why I wanted to go to law school. It's made lawyers seem very cool. Yeah, well, well, first of all, and I, I, I want to make something clear for the listeners here, and Amber, I already showed you this. This is, I'm not just reading this off the internet. I've got... I've got I, I've got the page. You do from you the do. from the print magazine. <laughs> um, and this is this is fascinating stuff here. First of all, we're profiling a prolific writer who is wealthy beyond what any of us can imagine. So you know you have to imagine this. But they did ask him sort of like about a fantasy dinner party full of Ooh. writers. Okay. And I'll just read you the thing. This is the the interviewer says, it's the holidays and you're hosting. Who gets an invite? Here's John Christian's answer. My wife and I would host together. 
I would want Mark Twain because I think he's the funniest guy who ever lived. We'd also invite our favorite writers, Pat Conroy, because he's gone now and we miss him, and he loved food. Then plus, as an aside here, plus Charles Dickens and Jane Austen. These are just, what? We're just, we're just tossing these off. This is a nonsense dinner party. It, it, well, first of all, I would like to take a little umbrage with Mark Twain is the funniest person. Are we really saying that? Well, we're I really mean, clearly that? he hasn't seen Liar, Liar. I mean, Jim Carrey was, <laughs> was right up there for a long time. I mean, Mark Twain is one of the formative humorists. Mm. And that's a very sort of, that's a very oldish writer take, I think. The other thing, oh, I didn't even mention this. I, I, I meant to say this before we got into it. The whole pretext of this article is that he has a new book called The Boys from Biloxi. I don't know what this book is about. I presume But do it they takes, make him talk about gumbo or something? Is that, That's not in, here. I will, get to, I will get to his actual recipes here soon. I assume this book takes place in Biloxi or in or around Biloxi, Mississippi. I don't know. But you know. It's a whole thing. Uh, would you like to hear the menu, Amber? Yes, please. What is he serving these luminaries? Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Listen to this, though. For appetizers, caviar, champagne, and deviled quail eggs. <laughs> First course. Okay. Listen to this. Maple roasted quail salad. So he's, oh, he's doubling, doubling up down on, on quail. quail. Right. Well, if you got the eggs... Oh, right. Then Just, we're doing the then I guess we're scenario. sauteing the bird and putting it in uh-huh. a salad. Okay. Followed by lobster in cream sauce over pasta. And for dessert, a praline souffle. Okay. I'm I'm actually on board with the praline souffle. I do think there's a lot of um historical problems we're gonna have with this menu. Because How's I that? think most of those writers would view lobster as like what you feed livestock. That's Ooh, not interesting. That's not going to be it's not a delicacy for anybody who's invited to this dinner party. Yeah, I mean, he would have to say, "Hey, listen. You can get like a $35 lobster roll in Maine now. Like like no problem. Like you have I'd to I'd love understand. him to explain that to Jane Austen. To Jane Austen. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Also, I don't want to look past. I've only cooked one souffle in my life and it was a savory souffle. I believe it was a broccoli cheddar number. And I don't really know how a nut souffle works. Have you done this? Oh, well, first of all, because it's very heavy. The the whole point is that you whisk in the egg whites and it floats up like this. And I don't really know how that works. Yeah. In my household, my husband, Andrew, does all the cooking with the rare exception of me doing a little bit of baking. But yeah, no, I am not advanced enough for that whatsoever. Yeah. uh, And the interviewer goes on to ask, he kind of gets to this in his first answer. The author asks about, like, the boys from Biloxi is set in the Gulf. And sure. he's, of course, saying, like, listen, I love oyster po'boys. I love red <laughs> beans and rice. Crawfish etouffee. I don't know if you ever spent any time in the, um, in the Gulf area. Now, I mean, Amber, you're from the more southern part of the United States yeah. than I am. But it's a but very I'm, different. It's very different. I'm mountain southern. Um, I know, yeah. mountain southern. It's very different. But... I have not spent really any time in like Louisiana, Mississippi, any of those areas, but I've had several friends from those places who bring their culinary traditions to group events and do things like, you know, cook a great gumbo or whatever. So I'm into it. It does make me wonder, I wish they'd asked John Grisham 
what some of the classic like characters in his most famous books would have had as their favorite dishes. Because I think there's a lot to talk about there. Well, they kind of combine that with the uh, in this question about Gulf cuisine, because that's where the new book is set. So it was yeah. sort of combined that way. I do want to just do one last item here, which is just the writer, again, Don Davis, is trying to peel back the layers of what makes John Grisham, John Grisham. Again, he's got like 50, like number one best-selling books or something. I don't even, I can't even keep track of it. She did ask him, after a day of writing, what's a more casual dinner at the Grisham house look like? And he wrote, or, or rather he said, Italian sausage pasta, chicken or turkey sausage, and a tomato basil sauce over pasta. Caesar salad with Ina Garten's dressing, a baguette, and berries and cream. And all of that is to say, I am so glad that John Grisham, like myself, is clearly an Ina Garten stan. I don't know where <laughs> you stand on this. We both live in the New York area. She is a, she is a Long Island luminary, of course. Love yes. Ina Garten. Feel very good about that. Also, increasingly jealous of John Grisham's life. I well, mean, that's his casual dinner. It sounds great. I know, I know. He's just like casually drumming up uh, savory <laughs> pasta dishes and delicious salads, of course. Yes, please. I, how do I get on his list? I mean, I'm no Jane Austen, but can I come to dinner? I want Yeah, to. you should write, you should, I mean, to hear him tell it, you should write like three or four acclaimed novels and then die a hundred years ago. Oh, okay, let That's me get right on do. that. I mean, so, I... Uh, <laughs> work on that before next week's show and then uh, and then we can talk. Well, I've had a two-thirds of a manuscript done for, I don't know, a decade. <laughs> so uh, the odds of me finishing may be slim, but I don't know. I better I believe log in off you, now. Yeah. Let's end the show and I'll give it a go. Thanks a lot for bringing that one, Alex. Really fun. Thank you, Amber. Uh, greatly enjoyed the show as always. We also have plenty of other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Joseph Polito and Benjamin Norin, our contributing reporters, Brian Koenig, Beverly Banks, and Tracy Reed. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Keller Mercano. And if you like Pro Se, it would really help us out if you left us five stars and a written review wherever you listen. If you want to read more about anything we've discussed today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.